This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Hello everyone, welcome to a special episode of Chapter Tactics. I brought Jeff and Abuse Puppy into the studio and we all talked about the new FAQ that GW put out. Uh, now unfortunately, this episode was supposed to air earlier on the week, one fresh off of the FAQ release on Monday. However, I got really busy with Kingdom Con work uh, down here in San Diego. Uh, I was running the secondhand shop at a convention, the Broadside Bash. And so I, I couldn't unfortunately post the episode, so I combined it with this week's episode. And basically, I'm just going to talk about the Broadside Bash, um, and specifically about what we saw out of the Broadside Bash. And I'm just going to speak a little bit about my thoughts on the meta and where it's going, and then we'll jump right into the FAQ review. Uh, we talked about the FAQ, our thoughts on it, the direction that we think the meta is going to head, and what we're going to do as players to to kind of prepare for the new FAQ meta uh, because it's a very big FAQ. I predict that it's going to be the biggest FAQ of the year and that's including chapter approved and the FAQ coming up in the summer. So I, I expect this to be a huge FAQ, bigger than anything they've released so far and bigger than anything they're going to release this year. It's a big change. We can call this 8th edition 8.5 and we're almost done. We just need uh, all the codexes to come out and we have a complete... 8th edition vision, and then I think we can start handing out report cards for how good GW's done overall with 8th edition and basically creating a new version of 40k. So, let's jump into this. Broadside Bash. Uh, the Broadside Bash is a local San Diego tournament. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend. Like I said, I was running the secondhand shop at the convention, Kingdom Con, um, which if you're ever in the San Diego area around this time, Highly recommend it. It's a great convention. It's a board game convention. It's tabletop gaming. It's a lot of fun. People are always up until 1, 2 a.m. drinking, playing all sorts of board games, having a great time, and it's a lot of fun. It's it's always something that I go to every year, and Reese and Frankie go to it every year as well, except for this year. Frankie, unfortunately, could not make it. Um, he had something come up. Jason didn't go, though, uh, let, to be fair, Jason doesn't really play 40K much anymore. Um, he's, he's kind of, uh, too busy looking at himself in the mirror and taking selfie pictures and putting them on Instagram. That's okay though. He looks pretty good. So if I had a body like that, I might do that more. And Reese, unfortunately, didn't make it out to the Broadside Bash. So none of us actually competed in the Broadside Bash. Uh, Jeff and Sean, uh, didn't compete as well. So I don't have anyone with firsthand knowledge, but it was also this weekend. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll pull over, I'll pull up 
Brandon Grant or James Carmona or someone that was in the broadside bash to talk about it. I don't think that's necessary, though. Uh, I was there. I, I, I did manage to sneak around and and uh, pull uh, or uh, talk to the players and get a feel for it. And the reason why I want to talk about this is not only is it's it's a major that that's close to us, so we I can kind of give like a uh, kind of look at at where the the way the meta is shaping, but also it's the last big major. Um, it's one of the last few big majors. I think it actually is the last big major that's going to not use the FAQ. So after this, expect all majors to be using the FAQ rules. Now. That being said, they did actually ban soup lists. They or they banned soup detachments, so to speak. Um, so you can't, you couldn't have an Imperium army or an Imperium detachment uh, in your army. You had to stay pretty vanilla. You, had to, you know, a few allies, but you had to stay to your keywords, kind of like what the FAQ did. So in that sense, it, it kind of, it kind of, uh, you could kind of see where the FAQ meta is heading if you look at the broadside bash. Um, but it's definitely. It's definitely something that that you have to take with a little bit of a grain of salt. So, first, congratulations to the winners. They had two undefeated players, Daniel Olivas, uh, someone from uh, an Inari player from Arizona, uh, who who played played uh, Don Houston's Plague Burst Crawlers probably too many times to that he cares to admit, and Richard Cozart, uh, a Chaos Demons player, specifically a Nurgle player, who also went five and zero. So both of those players. Uh, both those players, congratulations to both of you guys. Um, I hope you guys don't take this personally, um, but you guys, it's nice to see fresh blood on the table, or uh, it's nice to see someone, people who haven't necessarily been in the top scene or been in the, the competitive scene as much. And Daniel Olivas, this is actually his first. This is actually his first uh, large major that he attended. So this is the. I think this is the first major that he's traveled to because he's from Arizona. Um, so, so he is, he is, uh, relatively new to the San Diego scene and to the traveling tournament scene. So hopefully see more from him. Um, he did play Brandon Grant round five at the top table, um, and squeaked out a win, a two point win though. I, I, I get the feeling that what, cause I watched most of that game. Um, I was lucky enough to watch most of that game and, uh, Brandon. So let me talk about their list real quick before we, before we jump into this. So Daniel Olivas was running, uh, in Inari, kind of your traditional Eldar list. Uh, he had Spirit Seers, Rangers, a Wave Serpent, Farseer, Warlocks, lots of Dark Reapers, one big squad of Dark Reapers to be specific, an Autark Skyrunner, Wraith Blades, um, which which is kind of the unique twist, right? Having Wraith Blades, Ivrain, uh, a troop, a troop choice, or the Harlequin troops, um, and uh, Starweaver and a Wave Serpent. So. So it's kind of kind of not your complete standard list. Uh, he he eschewed the guardian blobs that you saw at Thelvio and shining spears, but he did did replace them with wraith blades um, for deep striking and melee shenanigans, and also a lot more shooting. So he had a lot more shooting. Um, and one one thing to note: the broadside bash did add more terrain to their tables, but th- it was still relatively light on terrain at the event. Uh, as I was walking around. Um, there were definitely clear firing lanes, and for the most part, if you if you were to put your model on a on a large building somewhere, they could pretty much shoot anything. So take take that with a grain of salt as well, um, which is I think one of the reasons why Dark Reapers performed really well. Um, obviously, they perform well in uh, open terrain maps map maps. So, anyways, so he played Brandon Grant. Brandon Grant was running a whole bunch of guard whole bunch of guardsmen. Um, 
a large nine-man unit of Bulgren, uh, backed by Primaris Psychers for buffing a few company commanders. I think he brought 80, 80 guardsmen. Let me just count this real quick. Yep, 80 guardsmen. Uh, three Hellhounds, a Basilisk, two heavy weapon teams, and a Shadow Sword, and five Seraphim and an Auxiliary Support Detachment. Um, just to, you know, with uh, Inferno Pistols, just to kind of move them around. They're really good by themselves. Uh, so, so that's what he brought. He brought a Guard Brigade, um, a whole lot of bodies, and it looked like the Tempest Launchers on the Dark Reapers did the most work for for the in for um the Inari specifically um as as you would expect they do chew through they do chew through guard very well um so as as the game was kind of progressing Daniel was able to to get a lot of points into um winning the first three turns um but the real key that Daniel did was he he basically tied up Brandon Grant in his deployment zone early on and and baited the Bulgren away from the middle of the board um to go chase the, so with the spirits here so the bulgrin managed to leave chase the spirits here but they were so far out of position that they couldn't they couldn't do anything else to to help in the battle so that i thought that was pretty smart daniel daniel i think played brandon in that respect uh brandon probably should have just pro- brandon probably should have just uh stayed calm or um or i guess maybe kept the bulgrin in the middle of the board or kept the bulgrin in front of his tank line um, to keep the wraith blades and all the all the Eldari stuff off of his his tanks, his basilisk and his bane blade, or his uh, shadow sword or whatever. I forgot. I already forgot what it was. His bane sword. I don't know. His his bane blade, big giant tank thing. Um. So uh, essentially, what happened was uh, they were relatively tied, relatively close up until the end. Um. Daniel basically on turn five and turn six outscored Brandon. Because he had more models on the board, so he was able to kill the last guard squad, kill a few HQ choices, kill the Bane Blade, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and with all of his Dark Reapers, which were relatively unharmed, because Brandon couldn't get to them, so he killed one squad, but then he couldn't do much else after that. Um, so Daniel did a great job of holding off until the final six, final five, fifth and sixth turns, and um, he showed what you can do when you when you play a little more conservatively and. You just go for maximizing kills and points um, every game, and he also I think he went second too, which is which is really helpful in IGC missions. So he's able to see how many units he needed to kill from Brandon's to to beat Brandon's kill value, and then he was able, of course, to take over the board and stop Brandon from deep striking and outflanking places that he needed to go. So overall, I think it was a brilliant play, brilliant game played by Daniel Olivas, and I hope to see him in more tournaments. Now, Richard Kosar, I don't know much else about. I will tell you guys his list. So he had Epidemius, a Sloppity Biopiper, two units of Nurglings, um, a big unit of Plague Bearers with an instrument, a lot of Plague Groans, 15 Plague Groans, one unit of eight and one unit of seven, uh, Feculent Naramaw, and then he had a, a just a Chaos Space Marine detachment with Armon, Death Guard, uh, Death Guard Demon Prince, and three obliterators, three units of obliterators with the marker Nurgle. So this is just uh, kind of like, kind of like your typical Chaos Space Marine Hammer list. Uh, you have Armon to to uh, buff the plague drones, make them. Actually, I don't think you can target the plague drones. So you have Armon to fly around, hurt things. Armon can can uh, move the obliterators twice if he needs to, or just smite things and do his own thing. And the plague drones are buffed by the the um, rest of the stuff uh, in the Chaos Demons Nurgle detachment. 
and they, they kind of just like move up and do their thing. They're very, very hard to kill. Um, this is one of those lists that I don't, that I don't, I would not want to face at all. Um, it's very resilient. Um, the obliterators form a great gun line by themselves. If you get to the obliterators, if you can't kill them outright or keep them locked in close combat, you, they're just, they're just going to work right through you, um, because they are pretty durable. So overall, it's a great, it's a great chaos list. And then Brandon Grant came in third with his only loss being to Daniel Kolivas. And then Don Houston. I think this was the the last the last Plague Burst Crawler tournament that he's going to have before he before the FAQ guts his list. So he gave the Plague Burst Crawlers one last hurrah and finished with a very strong four and one record. Um, so that's your top four. Uh, overall, I, I saw a good mix of Eldar and Chaos kind of doing really well. Um, one thing that I would like to know is there were there was a few really good Necron players. There, there was a, a guy named Jay who beat uh, our teammate Aaron Hayden um, pretty handily with a double Tesseract Vault list. I think he had two Tesseract Vaults, a lot of Warriors, um, uh, I think a Satan, and and uh, Destroyers, and that's it. That was that was like his list. It was basically just like Destroyers and Tesseract Vaults, or or it might not be Destroyers. It might have been like Wraiths and Tesseract Vaults. It's basically like one really good hard to kill Necron unit. Plus Tesseract Vaults, plus Troop Choices. And that was it. So, it was. It, it looked like a really good list. Um, he obviously performed really well with it. And uh, Jessica Bowman also did really well. I think she ended up finishing 3-2. and two. Um, So, Necrons, uh, they're only going to get better. Especially now with uh, some of the the uh, nerfs to some of the top armies. Things like Flyerance and Chaos. Especially Chaos. Um, Chaos didn't get nerfed a whole lot, but I do see Chaos, as I was talking to Jessica Bowman at the, at the event, um, Chaos, specifically Nurgle Chaos, do give Necrons a problem, because, um, they're just as durable as Necrons, um, but they are close combat based, so they're able to tie up things like Warriors and Destroyers really well, and not die afterwards, after they get shot up, so, so they, they play more of a board position game, whereas Necrons, who are just as durable as, as Plague, as, uh, Death Guard and Nurgle, uh, they don't play the board position game as well because their close combat doesn't, isn't as quite as good, right? So they're even with all the crazy smites and stuff or the mortal wounds being dished out from the satans and whatnot, it d- doesn't generate enough to kill Nurgle units, right? Because of their disgustingly resilient rules. So that'll change after the FAQ. Um, I think I think that Necrons will have even more of a shot. And they didn't actually get hit that hard by the FAQ. So that's, that's cool. And that was the broadside bash. Uh, let me know what you guys think. Uh, if you guys have been to any local tournaments or if you guys noticed anything in particular about your games uh, playing with the new FAQ rules, I think that ultimately, I think that we're going to see a lot more diversity and that's going to be great for the game. And also, if you want to check out the secondhand shop, unfortunately you missed out, but not to fear, if you come to the SoCal Open in October or if you come to the Las Vegas Open in February next year, you will be able to come check out our secondhand shop. Uh, we have a booth that we run, and we have thousands and thousands of models all in bags and boxes that are labeled for you guys to sort through with great, great prices. Uh, someone purchased three fully painted Imperial Knights for $250 at our store. They were two Night Crusaders and a Night Gallant, uh, which is a great deal, obviously. Um, and people nonstop were telling me about how much of a good deal they were getting. I, I think that even one guy purchased a unit of 10 Assault Marines that were fully painted and kind of matched his color scheme for uh, 20 bucks and then played them in the tournament at the broadside bash because he wanted to switch up his list a little. Uh, so it, it 
you get a lot of value. I, I I pride myself on on fair, reasonable prices to get people into 40k. I feel like the price the the MSRP price is very daunting, and I don't want that to be a barrier to play. I do want people to buy from GW. I want people to buy new inbox items because you do get more out of them. They are a better purchase. Uh, if you're looking for more, right? Like a Stern Guard box, you can't argue the value of a Stern Guard box if you buy it new with all the bits. However, if you're looking to get into the game, or if you're looking for a quick fix to your to your list, if you're if you're looking for something cheap, um, because you're traveling a lot, or or you don't want to invest so much money into into a particular unit because you're playtesting it, I highly recommend going secondhand. Uh, it's how I got into the game. I, I sold my entire Magic collection for or not my entire magic collection my my entire all my dual lands which, which if you play magic that those are the really really expensive lands uh i sold them all for about eight hundred dollars and in warhammer money that's nothing right eight hundred dollars is, is nothing but i bought into warhammer with them uh made terrible money decisions and then with the remainder of my money about three or four hundred dollars i bought stuff that i actually wanted to use on ebay and that's kind of how i started the at the time the blue rainbow ultramarines army which is basically just a bunch of ultramarines stuff i bought on ebay in differing shades of blue and that's how i got into the game uh so i, I seek to bring that out to you guys and that's why i can't recommend the secondhand shop enough specifically uh because not only do we sell secondhand items and we not only do we purchase armies from you guys the our collecting dents you no longer use but I am the person who runs it, and I am someone who is passionate about getting more new people into the game and at, at, at reasonable prices. So that's it. I just want to remove the barrier, into the barrier, the price barrier that stops people from getting into 40k. Because I feel like that shouldn't be a reason why you shouldn't play 40k. So if you ever talk to a buddy and you're trying to convince him to play 40k or to play more 40k and he's like, oh, it's just too much, just send him over to my shop. Uh, tell me what he wants to buy, and I'll tell I'll tell him how how cheap it is and how affordable it can be. So that's it, guys. We're gonna jump right into the FAQ talk. Uh, I'm sorry this didn't go out earlier last week. Like I said, I was busy with Kingdom Con with Pink Kingdom Con prep, but I think you guys really enjoy it. I know I enjoyed recording it, and I know Jeff and Abuse Puppy got a lot of good stuff in. There's some ribbing and just overall great time. And we will see you guys in a couple seconds. Hello everyone, and welcome to a very special edition episode of Chapter Tactics, a midweek episode where I brought two co-hosts with me, who, first off, I'd like to thank you guys for coming on, uh, on kind of short notice, uh, for coming on in this special episode. We're going to talk about the FAQ. Just released this Monday, it's the new hotness. I know a lot of you guys have been asking me personally what uh, how it would affect my Imperium army because I am a known as a whack Imperium player, Imperial soup specialist, so to speak. Uh, even though I disagree, but I digress. We're going to talk about the FAQ, and I brought with me Jeff in control Robinson and Mister Sean Abuse Puppy. Say hi, guys. Morgan. Yeah, that's thanks for finishing you that one. You forgot off for the me. Morgan part. It's very P. important. Without <laughs> that second without that second half, I'm not a legitimate heir to the throne. Or it could I, have I, been that your <laughs> nickname is Abuse, but your last name is Puppy, which then you're Sean Puppy, and that gets even weirder. Well, I mean, that is technically true, but you know, I, I kinda go by different it's you know, nom de plumes and all I got that. it. Yeah. 
I, I actually wanted to avoid saying his last name because I didn't want narrative players to go to the LBO mm. next year and see Sean Morgan on the list of players playing and then quit. <laughs> it was actually more of a commercial thing. Uh, but thanks, Jeff. Well, thanks. all the narrative players listening to Chapter Tactics, I severely apologize to the none of you that are listening. There, there's a bunch <laughs> of them. There's there a few. The, the yeah. narrative community is way more competitive than you would think. I guess. Not really. Not not at all. Uh, for those of you narrative players who are listening, um, who are actually listening, I appreciate you guys listening. But um, let's move on to the FAQ, the big, the big daddy. Uh, I thoroughly believe that this FAQ is going to be the biggest change we've seen. To, we're going to see the 8th edition this year. Um, and that includes chapter approved coming in at the end of the year. Uh, I, I think that GW did a really good job. They were very thorough. And this is the 8th edition that I have been waiting for since it was announced. Uh, I knew that the first year was going to be rough. We we're going to head into kind of a 8th edition beta year. But now you, you're finally starting to see GW's idea for how 8th edition should be come into fruition. Right? So now all we need is all the codexes and we're done. That's it. We're we're in this brand new age. So to help me talk about this FAQ and, and talk about this new age of 8th edition, Jeff and Sean are here. And I brought Jeff along because Jeff is probably the most tournament-ready player on this podcast. You're easing into it, are you, Pablo? You're just, just, just uh, <laughs> starting you're, to you're warm up to the guy. idea. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, no, you're right. You're right. Uh, I, I... <laughs> probably, you know, if I think about it. You've officially played more Adepticon games than all of us combined. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Absolutely so. true. Nobody can take that away from me. <laughs> nope. Well, the Olympic uh, Committee, but that's no true. one else. Oh, no. Jeff, were you doping? I knew you were doping at Adepticon. There's no way doping. Custodes could do so well <laughs> at Adepticon. Explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, I also brought Sean with me because I know Sean has probably already read this FAQ a billion times, front to back, every article, every section. Uh, and Sean is, Sean is our rules guy. So, Look, I brought Sean on to correct me. When I will eventually be wrong. If you're not reading the FAQs, what are you even doing? I mean, honestly. <laughs> you're, okay, you're not so, playing 40k. So let me throw this out to you guys as kind of a, a starter. What do you think is going to be the most important part of this FAQ in terms of changing the meta? Probably the 0-3 to three rule. I'd say without a doubt, 100%. You think that's so? That's going to affect. I, I think so. I think, I I think that... I, I I'm sure you guys both do. I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me, but I, I just I feel like the zero to three fix or the zero to three restriction is actually it's not going to physically change the meta so much as change the perception of tournament 40k, right? So it's it's the biggest it's the biggest elephant in the room um, when, when you're talking about tournaments specifically in the past like ETC ATC and just the perception of tournaments. And, and I felt like. I feel like ultimately it's going to affect the way people see tournaments and affect attendance the most. Um, that and the soup thing—they're they're definitely they're definitely fans, not fan service, um, a little fan service, but um, there's something that there are decisions that were were obviously going to be very popular in home runs if GW implemented them. Um, so I just think the zero to three detachment is just overall big picture the best thing to come out of this FAQ and the most impactful. I think it's Jeff the obviously thing. disagrees. I think it's the thing people will notice the most is yes. that people will say, you know, oh, you can't spam units anymore, which, to be fair, was a thing that happened, although it wasn't as common as a lot of people thought. Uh, but I think in terms of changing the meta, I, 
I, I'm kind of with Jeff here. I don't think it will be the biggest thing for actually changing the way the game plays because most armies don't run more than three of anything. That's true. Yeah, and most players uh, don't. If you think back to your last few tournaments, how many lists are changed by the zero to three that you played against? Uh, for me personally, none. Um, I know for you, Jeff, none. Uh, well, I don't know. You have to go Sean back to Oregon so in the four, in the eleven Hellhounds I faced. I think would be the yeah, because that's really all. It's like you saw the the Hellhounds or Plague Crawlers, Hive mm -hmm. Tyrants. There was really only a handful of units well, that Hive showed Tyrants, up. Yeah. Yeah, that, and it's not that it won't be relevant, it is. Hive Tyrants alone makes it a relevant change, but I think it's going to be less big than people tend to think. It's going to be more about perception, like uh, Pablo was saying, which yeah. admittedly is pretty important. Now, you did say, you did you did add an addendum to your question in meta. Now, you didn't say which meta, so I am still correct because the ETC meta is going to be oh, yeah. drastically changed if they adopt it. So I win, checkmate. Well, you're not oh, wrong. Shit, he got uh, me on a technicality. Was, <laughs> there are the spam kings over there, so we'll see if that ends up being that they take this. I hope they do because it would be really weird to get excited about a tournament that's not playing the relevant like rules format or even close to it. Yeah. Um, but I, to start to submit in the direction of where I think Sean and I probably agree. Um, I I mean, yours is where you're correct in the perception. Sure, I think it's a tough call because I think it is people that play more into the tournament scene which is i guess kind of the crowd that i usually speak to but i think as far as the tournament scene is considered and that's what i know best um the <laughs> drop outside of your deployment zone being impossible and just basically all the changes to drop is the yeah. absolute oh yeah biggest impact in in the tournament scene by a lot reserves are so fundamental to how the game plays right now and how it's played in almost every edition honestly right that changing the way reserves work significantly is absolutely massive right and, and i agree with you guys uh, especially in the itc it, it goes beyond stopping alpha strikes uh, it, it's one turn one less turn of recon that you get to score, right? Because uh, mm -hmm. I don't. I usually when I deep strike turn one, I don't actually deep strike to get in my opponent's face. I'll deep strike like an assassin in the far corner in a ruin, and he's going to be my recon for that quadrant, and he's going to get it me get it for me by turn four, um, because turn five and turn six there are not a lot of models left on the board, right? So it's something yeah. it's something like that too. It's it's about positioning and taking control of the center of the board, which you can't do with the majority of deep striking armies now. Getting objectives. Uh, just yeah. putting guys on objectives turn one makes a huge difference in the tempo of the game. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so turn ones are going to be uh, interesting. I think there might even be there might even be a little bit like a, a couple tactics articles spring out of just positioning for turn one now um, because it's so much more important. Well, it's it's absolutely massive because I think um, I mean the obvious kind of elephant in the room is like Blood Angels. This was basically their thing. Mm -hmm. This is what they did really well. But it's not just them, it's Bloodletter Bombs, Zanger Bombs. I think what's interesting about this is, to me, it was less relevant to what's going on right now, and more of a, like, I think in five, six months, when people have all their models assembled and painted, more of these codecs are coming out, I think you're going to a tournament you're facing out of five games, like, reliably three, where the entire thing your opponent's trying to do, or maybe four games, is drop the vast majority of the meaningful units from their list on top of you and get in. And then, like, one or two of those are almost guaranteed charges as well, um, which is very, very resoundingly clear with this last FAQ. They don't want the game that way. And kind of the tacit but 
I don't, I, I didn't watch the video of them talking about this, so maybe they explicitly said it, but I don't believe they did, but you can kind of see it in their motion. I believe they don't want the game to go the route of, and they're thinking of the little guy or, or kind of the lower table player where they just get dropped and attacked by three different gigantic units and they're murdered and then that's the game and they're done on turn two. So this is supposed to kind of prevent that, I guess. Yeah, and and it, it does. And if you guys listen to my very first episode of Chapter Tactics, when I talk about Frankie and I talk about Alpha Strikes, uh, we mentioned that Alpha Strikes are probably the least fun way to play the game in the long run, right? Because if you think about an Alpha Strike army, you either table your opponent turn one or win the game turn one, or you whiff and you lose turn one, and then you and your opponent have nothing to do except move models around the board for for the rest of the ter- game, right? It's just it's just Alpha Strikes are inherently unfun i get that people like them i personally love out i love a good alpha strike i love a good gotcha moment it, maybe not a gotcha moment um you know i'm not a tony but um i just i love i love a good i gotta love a good hammer moment where your opponent is crippled and they have to fight back from it like i just i just love that hard-hitting moment but i can definitely see how even in michael's local scene um how unfun that is for players and I, i've created a little bit of a stigma for myself when i first started playing because i ran a lot of alpha strike lists so I can definitely see that. I can see where I, I just think they're too from. heavy-handed, though, in my opinion. Like, I, I, they, I agree. They should have kept it at the power level restriction, which I thought was actually a pretty elegant way to make it so that you're not facing these really lopsided lists that have like the joke units on the ground just to have as no, as much boots as they need, and then it's the real stuff dropping in. Uh, and then a couple of things that they did, like those changes were really good, but then coupled with now you can't drop out of your zone on turn one. I don't think it's the end of the world, but I definitely think... It was too heavy-handed. I, th- I thought it was too significant. Yeah, they I, they definitely pushed it pretty strongly. Of they don't want the game to resolve around turn one. I maybe don't feel quite as strongly as Jeff does about like it was too strong, but it certainly it completely changes the strategy on a lot of types of armies that were previously just like dropping in a thing. And like Pablo was saying, it's not very interactive. It's like if my entire plan is to drop three blood letter bombs on you turn one, it either works or it doesn't, and the game is over from there. Yeah. And, and, and now that we spoke our opinions about it, um, I want to drop some tactics on you guys, because this is chapter tactics. Uh, one thing that Jeff and I were talking about um, when, in terms of the power levels and how you can manipulate power levels to, to benefit um, your reserves, essentially to put more models in reserves, uh, it does affect armies like Grey Knights specifically. Grey Knight strike squads are seven power level. Um there's yeah. that's really high. That's like that's as much as Vanguard veterans who when kitted out to be as good as strike squads are significantly more points. Um so just just to give you kind of an idea, but what you guys could do is you guys could add an extra one model to like like let's say a tactical squad, which is four power level. Um you can add one model bringing that tactical squad up to six and all of a sudden you're doubling their power level points. Right, so for like fourteen points, you get an extra four power level, and you can do that with Grey Knight Strike Squads. Um, I think it takes them up to—I don't think it takes them up to fourteen, but it might. Um, but just go ahead and look at those little tiny things to fix your lists up. Um, just just a, a little thing that that Jeff and I were talking about because uh, he was talking about Custodes, who obviously have a lot of high power level units. I think the bikes go up into the thirties when you have a six man squad or something, Jeff. Yeah, it's pretty it, crazy. It's yeah, it's insane, right? Um. So, so just keep that in mind, guys, when you're building your list. Uh, just, just know that it's not the end of the world, and you can still have one or two good hammer units with high power levels. You just have to kind of 
you know, keep an eye on your power levels when you're building. So that that's it. It's a little thing. Maybe people didn't know about power levels. Yeah, I think the key takeaway to the the reserves is not you can't play a strategy based around reserves. It's that no. your entire strategy can't be reserves. You have to have a plan for being on the table with some of your stuff. And that's actually, so Sean, to my, uh, I agree with what you said, but to me, that's part of why I don't like this change as much. And I'm not going to scream up to the heavens, gnash my teeth and tear my shirt or something like that, but because I do agree that the people that were having the experience of massive units dropping on top of them and just mauling them and they had no chance because they played, you know, Tau or some kind of mm. a, a unit that wasn't equipped to deal with this. I get that. But it's a little bit baby with the bathwater because it's so heavy handed. I do see units that otherwise had cool synergy or like kind of what Pablo was talking about earlier, scoring objectives, that kind of thing. Right. That's now not possible. So, of course, you can change it up at the list. And it's not like, well, I just bought 12 Kalexus Assassins and now I can't use them. It's, you know, OK, sure. All that kind of stuff will upset people. But um, I did like how in, in my tournament experience, you'd face some of these guys that they had that one scary unit, and it used to be a dynamic thing where they're like, well, on turn one, you prepared accordingly, so I'm not going to drop, because I think strategically it's cooler for me to drop a little bit later, whereas now, that's not an option. It's just, you don't get the drop. Both players go into the game knowing that, so they're gearing more towards either hiding, depending on what they're playing, or shooting you harder. Mm -hmm. And then the second drop comes in at a disadvantage, that because both players already know when the drop can happen, and there's no choice there, they get to screen out so that that fluffy unit goes out or whatever and people always say well then bring stuff that you can use to shoot those guys not everybody has that not every army is geared towards that and that's always the case with warhammer so even as i say this there's already the inherent argument of like well traff before you couldn't and now you still can it's like i get that but you're limiting options and you're making the game safer for a fewer like the people that didn't think to bring a screen or were facing the extreme list but now we're kind of mediocrizing the entire game in the name of that and to me that's i don't like that direction i guess yeah i think there are a lot of unfortunate casualties on this faq you know yes this solves the problem of like oops here come my shining spears they charged your whole army i kill four units and lock up six more uh and removing that as a strategy great some of that did need to go no one really loved the you know the zangor bomb that drops in and fights twice and there's nothing you can do about it uh but at the same time there's a lot of armies that got hit pretty hard jeff mentioned blood angels that's it's kind of an issue for them they really can't play as aggressively right now but even worse is stuff like gray knights like gray knights basically isn't an army anymore because they can't drop outside their zone they don't have any good on the ground units they're really just running short of options generally uh, in terms of all the things the FAQ has done to them. And GW was really nice and gave Gene Steeler Colt an exception to that, but Gene Steeler Colts were the only ones. And there are several other armies that just don't work anymore. Um, you know, Deathwing is another one. Not that Deathwing was a real army anyways, but <laughs> it, like now you can't even pretend. Yeah, it, and... I, I, I'm i going to make a point on the Grey Knights, and then I have a question for both of you on this, and then we'll move on. Uh, so, Grey Knights, Grey Knights are, I agree, I think they got hit the hardest. I, 
there are a lot of Blood Angels players. Blood Angels are one of the most popular factions. Um, just if you look at eBay sales and <laughs> forums, etc., Blood Angels are just really popular. So I think Blood Angels are going to be the primary focus um, when people complain about this FAQ. But I feel like Grey Knights have a legitimate gripe. Uh, because they are high power level, they have high power level units, they have generally higher power level to points ratio, and when you run Grey Knights, you want to ally them with, with something cheap like Guard, you know, to hold the board for you while you deep strike your two strike squads and your two Nemesis Dread Knights. Well, now, those two Nemesis Dread Knights and those two strike squads, which isn't actually a lot of Grey Knights, it's not a lot, it's not that big mm-hmm. of a deal, um, that's, that's a... 28 42 power level points so you have to your guard have to have 42 power level and and that's hard to do for a guard army right so you're start it's just it's it's for gray knights i feel like it's a little unfair for gray knights though they did get a, a teensy tiny buff they got their smites back their baby smites yeah i appreciate that was you know they did do that although interestingly you know gray knights and thousand suns get their baby smite pink horrors don't uh, pink horse can go screw themselves. See, man, everyone's still <laughs> salty about seventh. Gladly, they do it too. <laughs> They're into that kind of thing, man. Let's cue the Pablo hates chaos emails coming. I can feel them already. Mm-hmm. I'm obviously joking, guys. Um, but 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 all all joking aside, uh, Grey Knight players, uh, I'm interested to see where you guys are going to go from this. I read a really great article or a really great comment on an article on FrontlineGaming.org from a Grey Knights player saying like he, he's, he's bummed out by it, but he's going to go into it this weekend with his Grey Knights army, and he's going to find something that works before he makes a final judgment on the FAQ. Whoever you are, you are a true hero. You, you, are, you win the internet today for me. Uh, but moving on. You guys talk. You guys, this is obviously your pick for the biggest meta change. Do you see the meta shifting towards uh, big hammer units starting on the board? Things like Death Company, who get to move twice uh, in the first in the deployment phase and in the moving phase. Things like Bullgrin, um, you know, just big units that they actually like staying on the board, like moving up with a, a blob. Or do you guys see like hammer units going away? Or do you see hammer units deep striking on turn two and then and then assault? Like, where do you guys see the meta shifting from here? I think what you'll start to see is you'll still see those hammer units. Uh, mm-hmm. They're still good. They still do great things. They're a little bit less reliable now that you can't warp time or quicken them into the enemy's face. So you won't see armies that rely exclusively on them as much. Uh, and you'll see armies bringing more elements to support them. Uh, turn one for a lot of reserve style armies i think is going to be basically a setup turn you're you know using your anti-infantry shooting to kill off their screens to sort of clear the ground for you and then turn two is when the hammer drops hammers are still good they still kill things uh you just you won't be able to go all in on the plan now you're gonna have to do a little bit of work setting it up yeah which i think is Especially if viewed that way is a mostly good thing, because like you know, it was the extreme. It wasn't what everybody was doing, but having units with a guaranteed charge come in and all you could do is screen, which is still good. And I get that pushing it back a turn increases the strength of screening, so it's less likely that that happens, and that's fine. I definitely think the the meta will shift in the direction of, I mean, the the, the kind of no brainer is it's going to be a little bit more shooting, which uh, had fallen back a little bit which is going to empower certain lists, which is kind of fun um, that it's going to shake things up a little bit. I think Guard had a lot of natural predators out there. They still exist, but they're going to have a little bit of a better time dealing with that. 
I think the Tau Codex that just came out, they're going to be a little bit more excited that they don't all have to buy Crute and just watch them get annihilated and then be like, well, I've got one turn, you know, and then they're in trouble. So that's all cool. Um, I think this is going to reinforce that in order to have a good time at a tournament, places like Broadside Bash this weekend, which is not using the FAQ, or an Adepticon, where they have beautiful terrain and a wonderful tournament, but perhaps at a lot of tables, zero line of sight blocking, you just can't do that. You can't. You cannot get away with that. Uh, it's always been true in 8th edition, but if we're going to make it so that someone that has an assault-based army like a Blood Angel player needs to stay on the table for a whole, possibly two turns before they get their codex-empowered, you know, retribution, basically. Um, my god, is it going to be a bad time if the other guy who is just like, I brought all the shooty things, can see everything, and then they also get to stretch out and have more board presence, so then your your hammer unit does drop down, but now it's mid-table, and it takes another turn to get into the, the underbelly. That's flipping this issue on its head in the other direction, and I, that's why, not to, I, I swear I won't repeat this too many times, that's why I think it was too heavy-handed as opposed to the middle ground, which is like, make it so that they have to have higher power level on the table or more units, um, but that in conjunction with turn two and your own zone is like, you're guaranteeing this scenario. Yeah. yeah. And ju- just to expand on that real quick, Sean, um, there... I want to. I want to tell Turner Tiogos, not. It's not just walls. It's not just line of sight blocking terrain. Like I don't want to see giant foam walls of impassable terrain cutting boards in half. Like I want to see more ruins, right? Hills, hills, and and walls are are cute and they're fine. They're easy to build. Uh, but I, I want to see more tournaments put effort into putting more ruins on the table. Uh, something that a lot of tournaments that I've been to just simply don't do. Uh, ruins dynamically help assault armies especially putting objectives in ruins it, when we play here at the office it, we actually play kind of like a little bit of a different of a medic because we use itc terrain and, and we always have a big centerpiece ruin on the board that blocks line of sight and that you need assault oriented infantry models to get into or else you start giving up free recon points because it's generally in the center of the board uh, or that center objective if there is a center objective for playing that itc mission so it it makes it gives assault players uh, something a goal to to take over or ground to try and take over and hold um, or to or to fight into, right? It's ruins are, are just they're very important. They're one of the few terrain pieces that actually get rules, uh, generic terrain pieces that get rules from GW, and I just don't see them often enough. So I just wanted to expand on that. Yeah, I don't think we need to turn this into a, a lecture no. about terrain, <laughs> but it, terrain is very important to the game, and the the terrain you have at your tournament vastly affects how the players are going to play and what they can do. If you don't exactly. have good line of sight blocking terrain, be it ruins or other things, assault armies just wither and die. And that was true before, and it's even more true now. Right on. So let's move on to Battle Brothers. Uh, this is one that I'm sure a lot of people are going to want us to talk about. Um, just my two cents. I, I, I like that they got rid of soup detachments, uh, though I don't think they nerfed chaos deta- or chaos armies enough to make the the traditional chaos list that you see now. Um, things like the the cultist spam um, was per- practically untouched. Like I know they nerfed Ooh, Tide I, of Traders, so it's once per game. Yeah, I uh, would but... strongly disagree there. I think okay. That chaos armies are going to have to look totally different going forward from this. Uh, uh, well, but... 
Okay, so let's get your thoughts on that. So, so we're obviously we're differing opinion there. Well, I mean, admittedly, this is not ITC, but you take a list like uh, Nick Nanavani's uh, Adepticon list. Um, yeah. That list doesn't work anymore. It is non-functional. Um, you you can't tide of traders multiple times. You've got to pay reinforcement points for those pox walkers. You, I don't think he actually had any mixed attachments. I think they were all uh, pure codex. But you know that's another thing that you do see a lot of with especially chaos. Um, and those things just don't work anymore. So your basic battle plan that you saw a lot of chaos armies do, which is drop out a million bodies warp time some zangors into the enemy uh spawn a million pox walkers off all your other dudes doing etc those things all got hit pretty hard by the hammer and it's not that chaos doesn't have good stuff left anymore but they're gonna have to be playing a very different kind of game okay so so to counterpoint real quick uh if you guys read Nick Nadavati's article on the brownmagic.com about his Adepticon list. Mm -hmm. um, he specifically stated that Poxwalkers weren't a key feature in his list because they didn't do enough damage. They were kind of a an accent or, or special. Now, I do agree. Poxwalkers <laughs> did get nerfed. Eh, he, they he, were... he did say that. I can I can pull it up he, right now and read he it. Did. It's not I'm a not... question of whether or not he said it. <laughs> yeah, sure, I just fine. don't fucking care. I don't even... What? And it happens and all the time. Where my they... point. Babe Ruth, you know, what was the key to your success? Like, oh, I just ate hot dogs. Like, all right, that's it. Thanks, guys. Right. But but if you take away Babe Ruth's hot dogs, he's still going to hit home runs. If you take away Nick Nottavice Poxwalkers, that cultist army still does really well without the Poxwalkers. No, They're not. No. Uh, well, it's, that know. list, and now, if he took that list, went to Adepticon with this FAQ, you're saying he would do just as good? Yeah. It would no, Nick Nottavice. Nick Nottavice? Now, now, would would uh, no. would an average player take that list and do as well with it if it got nerfed? I don't think so. Pablo, but I I also think Nick Nottavati is probably the best player ever. But I'm not about to fillet him so hard that I would say that he <laughs> takes a list where literally the zombies just function as troop choices that die to anything, and then a bunch of cultists that need to respawn to function the way he wants them to, and when they respawn, create more zombies, and say that he's going to beat. Which, by the way, he didn't. In the end, he actually lost. But he's going to beat some of these amazing... He faced three Fire Raptors. If he's not spawning new units, how does he beat that? And uh, also, he loses... Fire Raptors did get nerfed, but I get your point. Yeah, but he also loses his ability to warp time the Zangors and things and tie them down while other units do work. Oh, I forgot about that. That's yeah. actually his Chaos that's actually is getting more important. A, a triple hit out of this. Pablo. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, warp time? Oh, never mind. The list doesn't work. Are you well, kidding me? It's important. The detracking the Zangors down and warp timing them was, if you, if you read the article... Um, was a key part of his list that he really. I read his article. I just don't actually think everything he says is actually the truth. Oh, yeah, you have a, to. That's a good point. Top players always do that. It's not even just him. We're, like, we're talking about him, but players all the time are like, "Oh yeah, uh, who was it? It was like, oh, it was a uh, fucking Brett Perkins. The one of the funniest <laughs> things when he won LVO, he was like, he he all the time people would be like, yeah, what you know, he had Mortarian or not Mortarian, a uh, Magnus early on. He's like, yeah, Magnus didn't even do anything for me. Kills half the guy's army. He's like, yeah, but I would have killed it with something else. Like, okay, top player. <laughs> These guys do this all the time. Not a body is amazing, and he would do very well with that list in relation to other people. I agree with that point. But this idea that if he's not respawning zombies, not regurgitating out more cultists, uh, that he would do as well is complete. I don't believe it for a second. Yeah. Right. And, and 
you know, I'm I've got a bit of a bone to pick here, and maybe, maybe this is where where my my accusations are coming from, and that the chaos didn't get as nerfed as well, is because it, I felt like cultists needed something, needed something else. Like maybe um, they needed to lose like the heretic Astartes rule, which which I thought would have been a great fix to cultists. But I just I feel like cultists are still more strong. They they, they weren't as changed by this FAQ as as much as I think they should have been. Let's just just leave it at that. Well, I mean, let's be let's be clear. It's not that I think cultists are bad. They're still an amazing troop choice. They cover board. They're very cheap. They can do work in a lot of different ways. But the kind of chaos list you typically saw in the era up to the fact uh, just don't work anymore. You can't do the same things. You can't rely on one block of 40 cultists to just keep popping back turn after turn after turn. Uh, that's not an option anymore. So chaos is going to have to change how it plays the game, just like blood angels are going to have to change how they play the game. Yeah, you, you I, are not going to see zombie factory. That's completely dead. No, it's gone. I, I agree. It's that's, that's cultists gone. are very good, but it's going to be the it should be the one block of cultists that you use mm-hmm. in a very similar fashion. But now it's toned down, so you're not like you're not presenting an issue to your opponent that they just simply cannot deal with, which is what used to happen. Which was like, hey. If you can't kill 40 cultists in one go, this is never leaving you as long as I have command points. And that was a huge problem because people would either take a lot of DACA or anti-armor or maybe melee, but 40 cultists that are oftentimes minus one to hit, at at least at range, Mm -hmm. were like a very difficult thing. And then you buffed them up and they could do more. Yeah, That's not Uh, to say, and I think no one on this podcast is about to say this, but I don't think Chaos are like, well... That's it. I'm never winning again. Like, I think they still have a lot of options. They have a lot of tools. But the things that were grossly overpowered have been reeled in. And the zombie factory, unfortunately, I think is too much because that, too, needed a more elegant touch than just like you literally have to pay reinforcement points for that because that's just it's gone. It's too bad because it was the abusers that made it gone. I liked a lot of people that played it where it was like a cool stratagem they could use that felt pretty powerful. But when you design an entire list around it, as so often is the case. It became clear that, that Games Workshop's like, and now it's gone, bitch. You're like, oh, sh- damn. Yeah. And, and I think the problem was that you could both make them untouchable and allow them to siphon guys off all your other units. Uh, in combination, that made the unit too good at what it did. Yep. If it would have said enemy units or something like that, or enemy infantry, whatever enemy, the wording would be. Or if you couldn't use both those stratagems on them the same turn, you know, you got to pick which one it does, that would have been fine. I- I'm just even more moderate. I, I would just say, leave it that you can cast powers on them. That's fine, but but make mm-hmm. it so that it has to be enemy infantry, or go the other route, like you said. Um, I just think the two of them in, in conjunction made for what we had, which is people are like, I'm going to design my entire army around this. Well, and I also find it very interesting because with the release of Dark Eldar and the Agents of Vect stratagem, I kind of feel like that list was already on its way out. Like if there's an entire army that you just roll over and die to you're not a top table list anymore. And Agents of Vect turns that army off. Like, you can't play that army in an environment where you are seeing significant numbers of Eldari armies. Ooh, that's a that's a good... Not just real quick, real quick side question for GW. If, you're, if your Tide of Traitor stratagem gets cancelled, does that mean that you can't use it ever again? That is my mm. understanding, because it is a once-per-game, you have still activated the stratagem, it has just had its effects negated. Uh-oh. 
Anyways, I I I I think we've uh, digressed a little bit from the Battle Brothers, the yeah, killing of the, the soup topic. So go, going back on topic, um, outside of of Celestine and maybe a few fringe like like uh the Inari characters, um, did it really change the meta? Um, getting rid of soup, or is it just more of a PR thing? Do you guys think? I think that it is not going to really change the meta a lot. Uh, it's just going to drop the efficiency of Chaos and Eldari and other armies a little bit, because now your three detachments means basically three codexes. So you're not going to have Grey Knights and then Blood Angels and then a third one that is Celestine and Guard and Assassins and four other things you're going to have to make some choices there. Uh, because you did you did see a decent number of mixed attachments like that. But it's not really changing what you have access to. It's just bringing it down so it's like, okay, pick three of them. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting because this, this was a good change, in my opinion, for pretty much targeting the things that they didn't like as much. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not seeing lower level, you know, it, it doesn't like single out a codex like, well, now it doesn't function. They were very smart about making an exception for assassins in particular. Um, and people were doing it as like a nice thing that they could do. And then it kind of cut some corners and made for some combos that were pretty ridiculous. Um, at LVO, like Aaron Along was, was running some soup and some of these, some of those kind of guys ha- had soup detachments, but for the most part, you can still design a list and have it do similar things. It's just that you're not getting that kind of weird detachment that had confusing rules and interactions and kind of, it, it, it's another one of those things that to me is like nice now, but was going to be a problem later when we get like seven or eight more codexes and they're added into this stuff. And then it gets some weird interactions. I'm okay with this being gone. And I, I think that's part of the reason why nobody's crying to the heavens about this change either. Yeah. And also, sort of like Jeff had talked about a little bit earlier, it is a soft-touch kind of solution. It's not just like, all right, all allies are gone because you guys ruined it. It's just like, okay, let's limit how you can use allies a little bit, and we'll see how this works out. And maybe six months or a year down the line, if we see that like allies are still a real big problem and they're not really good for the game, maybe they get removed entirely. But I really appreciate that with this GW, with this FAQ, in most cases, GW has tried to kind of just gently nudge the game in the right direction rather than what you saw in a lot of other cases where, like, it's just like, okay, you had anything nice, well, we throw it in the garbage because it's too good. Okay. And uh, real quick, and then we'll move on. just want to rant. Um, I've read a lot, quite a few comments saying that soup isn't dead. Um, I just like to clarify that yes, it is dead. If you you have a maximum of three faction keywords that you can put in your army now, and three ingredients is barely enough for a sandwich, let <laughs> let alone a soup, right? Yeah. So, Take so, that, soup haters! <laughs> a a <laughs> just, lot of people saying. consider any army that is not one hundred percent pure to be soup, which I think is an absurd definition. But right, that's just a semantic argument at that point. <laughs> just saying. All right. So before before we move on to the the nitty gritty in that in the FAQ, um, the GW changed some points costs, which which I think a lot of them made sense. Fire Raptors went up. Uh, the Dark Reapers obviously went up as well. The Feculent Narumal. I, I didn't think they'd noticed the Feculent Narumal, 
Um, but I'm glad I'm glad it went up in points a little bit. Um, it was a really powerful model. Uh, and then of course Gilliman, you know, whatever, made no sense. But um, <laughs> yeah. in general, <laughs> I, I'm I'm a big Gilliman fan. But go ahead. I I actually think more than Dark Reapers, the the more relevant one to the meta is the bump to the Eldar Psyker costs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Dark Reapers made a little bit less efficient, still probably good, but Warlocks bumping up almost to double their original price is pretty big. Yeah, fifteen yeah. points to them was was big. It was actually um, a full twenty. Was it twenty? Yeah, they 15? went from thirty-five to fifty-five. Okay. Yeah, yeah they're warlocks it is a lot harder to access runes of battle stuff now which admitted i think is good warlocks were too cheap before they were the cheapest psyker in the game and with arguably some of the best powers around well i think it's funny because there's there were some eldar players really upset about this but it's like you are going to get a nerf here it's mm-hmm. either a 10 point hike to the farce here and a 20 point hike to these guys or it's things like you need line of sight for your powers, or the range goes down, or yeah. it goes off on one or two higher command point, and or not command point, excuse me, but um, warp charge, warp charge, yeah. and then I think any one of those changes, you're going to see Eldar players be really upset and uncomfortable because they're enjoying perhaps the most powerful psychic phase in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still, I think, of all those changes, this is probably the better one, anyways. So like. That far seer that you only have one probably of, and mm-hmm. the the bone singer that you only had, or not bone singer. What am I, What was it? Spirit seer. Spirit seer. Excuse me. It's like you only took one or two of those guys either as well. So you're looking at like a thirty point increase overall, or forty or or fifty maybe. You yeah. can still afford those guys. You still get your powers off reliably with re rolls and plus one to cast and stuff like that. And you're still doing it without line of sight, and you're still casting amazing abilities. It's That's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, this is another yeah. fairly soft touch, I think, overall. Like, yeah, seven points on Dark Reapers is like a 25% increase in points, but I think it's hard to argue they aren't still worth that. And the, especially for the Psychers, which were pretty problematic, despite what some people seem to think. Uh, the Psychers were fundamental to the Eldar list. Uh this is a relatively careful kind of like, okay, let's just make them a little bit more expensive and see how this pans out. Yeah. And one thing I want to highlight is uh, the buff or the um, points increase to the Ravenwing Dark Talon. Um, yeah. I, I particularly like that because it shows that they're paying attention to the ETC matter and they're paying attention. They're paying attention to things beyond the ITC, which as they should do, you think, mm-hmm. you know, think like, duh, they, they're supposed to do that. Um, but uh, let's let's be honest here. They they are more ITC. They are more focused on ITC events or events. I guess in the states, the, you know, uh, the the London GT will obviously affect their decisions going forward in the future, um, because it's a large GT. But they are also using the ITC rules at the London GT. Um, so for those of you wondering, like, why Ravenwing Dark Towns were were nerfed um, out of nowhere, it's because they dominate the ETC scene. They're they're a very common build. Dark Angels. I think Dark Angel list you see will have like eight to twelve of them. Uh, and they're very good, uh, but you don't see them here in the states very often. Um, I'm not sure why. I, th- I think Adepticon I, I, actually not... had a lot of them. Did it? I, yeah, I didn't really see were... a lot when I was at Adepticon. But to be fair, there was <laughs> I know there was three in the top sixteen or three play- Dark Angels players in the top sixteen. One of whom had like eight Dark Talons, and neither of the other other two ran less than three. Hmm. Um, 
Yeah, it, it, Delvio. I didn't. I didn't see a whole lot. Um, I think one or two broke into the no, top sixteen. No, there was Delvio. there was like one in the top eight that had like three or six, but they weren't as yeah. popular. Yeah, but but in the ETC, they're they're everywhere. They're on every team, so that's cool. GW, good job. Um, now the battle points increase on battalions detachments. Um, I thought was kind of strange actually, but yeah, um, it's, it's kind of nice choice. It, Jeff, I'm actually kind of curious because you said you didn't listen to the uh, the live stream a lot, but one of the things they talked about in the live stream, because I caught a chunk of it, was that this change was supposed to help armies that have access to fewer battle points, like Custodes and Grey Knights, who were both explicitly called out by the, the guys on the stream. How do you feel it actually affects those armies, being someone who actually plays them? We lost Jeff. Yeah, I think is. Oh, no, no, I muted myself. I muted myself. Okay. <laughs> I've been trying to be a better guest and be, uh, or co-host rather, and, and be on mute. But this time, anyways, long mm-hmm. I, I'm silly. Um, I like it a lot. I think this is one of the best changes there is. I think command points is one of the most exciting and fun parts about the game. Um, and while this is like raising all ships, uh, so it's like, yeah, it's made for the elite guys, but it's not like it's just for them. Um, I think that it'll be most beneficial to them because typically they haven't come out and said this, but I find the more elite armies have what they probably feel like are more powerful stratagems. It's not to say that other codexes don't have powerful stratagems, but I, I do see a lot of the custodies and the gray knights. They have a lot of, you know, plus one to wound and this does plus one strength and minus one rend and some pretty cool stuff mm-hmm. that everybody else has similar things to, but perhaps they pay more for. So I, I do think it's really good. As a custodian guy that that basically for a while was telling everyone you have to take the guard detachment, um, maybe that's not as true. I mean, it's certainly not as true. Maybe it's not true. It's not just an outright law anymore. Um, it just gives more possibility. But I just see it being more fun in general. I think people have a good time and there's like fun mind games and strategy layers with your command points and with them being more abundant. Um, I think you're going to see more of that. I think there is a threshold. I just don't think we're there yet where it's not like battalions are not worth 20 command points. And then we get pretty ridiculous. Um, the elegant just plus two more or plus three for a battalion or a brigade, excuse me, means that you're, you're getting off two or three more stratagems. That's pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah. I, think... I, I actually, th- oh, go, oh, ahead, go, ahead, Sean. go ahead, Pablo. Oh, I was just saying, I think it's actually bad. I think it's actually like the opposite of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, like throwing the gator into the turtle pond. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> but the point is, is I, I think that it makes it'll make armies that are already really powerful, more powerful, like a chaos army. I'm going to use chaos because they are probably one of the top three factions still um, after this FAQ that they can make easy battalions just across the board um, with all of all the factions available to them. And they have now 18 command points. Um, a local James Carmona here, he 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 always claimed they need like 21 command points minimum. Um, now he only uses the Tide of Traders once per game. Um, now it's very easy for him to get 18 command points and, and not have to add a you know a crazy amount of units for a battalion to get those 20 plus command points that he needs. Um, so I just I just feel like like five for a battalion was a, was a little too much. Um, maybe four or or maybe. I don't. I don't know how you fix it from Games Workshop side. So I just. I just feel like you're giving too many command points to armies that that might abuse them. But we'll see. Well, and my thought is that an army, armies like Chaos, Tau, and Eldar, which admittedly are the three armies I play, 
but I've found all of them are very command point hungry. But right. like Jeff said, you hit a threshold. You can only spend so many command points per turn, or at least usefully. Uh, once you've already popped Tide of Traitors and Veterans of Long War and Endless Cacophony and used your reroll, like, what else are you doing at that point? You don't have a whole lot more stratagems that really benefit your army in most cases. So I think beyond a certain point, getting more command points just extends the longevity of an army, uh, which was typically what I experienced was turns 1, 2, and 3, people were dropping stratagems left and right. Turns 4, 5, and 6, most people have like one or two command points left, and they're just kind of sitting there hoping to, you know, use it to stop their their warlord from killing themselves or something like that. Um, so I think this is good in that it will play more to what some of the other things did, which is sort of like extend the game out, make all turns of the game more relevant, as opposed to the game focusing more on turns one, two, three. Um that said, I am kind of with Pablo about, like, five might have been a little bit too much for a battalion. Um, it almost doubles what a battalion gives you, and I certainly feel that the balance between battalions and brigades shifted. Because I, I took brigades all the time when they were nine compared to three, because you need to take a full three battalions just to equal one brigade, and then the brigade still has two more detachments it can use. But now three battalions is actually better than a brigade, uh, and the brigade tends to have a lot heftier requirements for most codexes. So I, I personally probably would have given the brigade a little bit more command points. If you're going to make the battalion five, make the brigade like 15, but Dang. that said, that has problems of its own. I'm not exactly sure how it's worked out. And honestly, we don't really know how it's going to work out in play anyways. But certainly, a lot more armies are going to be playing with a lot more command points. You're going to see more p people popping off stratagems. And like Jeff, I, I think stratagems are cool. I think they're one of the more interesting parts of the game. Because once you see your opponents down to zero command points, then you can just be like, oh, I don't, have to, I don't care what they do anymore. And now, uh, and I, I think I think that stratagems are really great for the game. Um, they bring a lot to the table and they make the game more fun. Um, though GW has to to tread lightly here because if they print another or a really powerful stratagem like Veterans of the Long War for another faction, um, that that could spell trouble. Uh, because we have more command points now. So they they just obviously they have to take care in their stratagem crafting. Uh, now now more than ever. Um, because there are not all codexes are created equal when it comes to stratagems. Like, just look at the Space Marine Codex versus the Chaos Space Marine Codex. If you take away their stratagems, they're almost equal, but if you add in stratagems, the Chaos Space Marine Codex by itself is by far better than the Space Marine Codex. Um, and this is just coming from someone who's played a lot of Space Marine Codex versus Chaos Space Marine Codexes matches, and it, it's just the truth. It's just a better codex. Yeah, their stratagems um, are pretty inarguably better. Right. All right, the word of Phoenix got nerfed. That's good. Um, and then the feel of pain nerf. I think that was that was fair. Um, I'm surprised they didn't do anything about the minus the multiple stacking minus one to hits. Um, yeah, but... that that one is interesting. I don't like the minus one mechanic as a whole, but it's there. We've got to deal with it. Uh, yeah. And I think the like a lot of people were saying like, oh, we should put in a thing where you always hit on at least a six point six up, which I think is kind of missing the point. Um, if you're hitting on sixes, you're basically not doing anything anyways. 
the difference between hitting on sixes and hitting on sevens is pretty trivial. Right. And, and I think GW knows that the minus one to hit mechanic is not great for the overall health of the game because it, it, as you've as the later codexes have come out after the Eldar Codex, I don't think a single codex has had a minus one to hit faction bonus. Nope. Since the Eldar, they're codex. all gone. Stygies. Next question. Stygies. Uh, the yeah. Admec. They they do get a minus one. I believe but they were Admec the... came out before the Eldar Codex. I don't actually remember. It did not. I I don't know. Think we don't know. It's after. I do know. Okay. You do know. So yeah, so so the so the Admec so the Admec Codex came out after the Eldar Codex. Yeah. Yeah. So checkmate, Jeff. You win. You can have chapter tactics. Here you go. <laughs> I'm emailing First you the password action right as now. ruler of chapter tactics. I have, I have nothing. <laughs> I would um, suggest setting up a despotic regime that crushes all who oppose you, but that's just okay. Me. I'll get Do to that. work on that. <laughs> all right, but uh, I think my point still stands in that um, it's since rare. November since last year, right? It's very rare and it's limited, which is perfect, exactly where it needs to be. Um, Surprise, uh, you guys don't like it. I, if it weren't for that, they're is like no other defense in the game almost. I, I think it's too yeah, good at good what point. it does. I don't begrudge the fact that there is an effective defense against shooting. Um, I don't like how good it is compared to your other options. Like, when was the last time you saw a non-ally talk Eldar army? They don't exist. Um, sure. And by the same token, it affects different armies very differently. Uh, you know... An Eldar or or a sorry a Tower Guard army just rolls over and dies to minus one to hit, whereas a Custodes army barely even notices. Yeah, and just look at specific units like the Hemlock Wraithfighter who abuse it and have a minus two to hit because of their yeah. hard to hit roll, um, which is I don't think something GW intended, um, but maybe they did. I don't know. It's... It just feels like something GW wouldn't do. The GW now. Yeah. It's I I think the minus one to hit a problem was that they were handing it out too freely. Um, you still do see it. Like the Custodes book has the banner that's minus one to hit within a radius, but that's within a specific radius. That's based off a single character. It's not just an army wide minus one to hit. Yeah, I'm I'm more on board with that as long as you get to that language where if it's not army wide, then you have access to it or some other defensive buffs. But my biggest problem with earlier 8th edition and we're getting further away from that which I really enjoy is the game is way too bland offense just everything shot you relatively didn't have much defense cover is plus one save which is just silly when most of the things are minus two or three and you only had a three or four up anyways and yeah so if you're not doing minus one to hit and if it's you don't have access to it then you'd have to sell me on some other way to survive shooting and attacking in a cool way. Because that's one of the things that I do miss from 7th edition where you could have... And obviously got taken to the umpteenth degree and went ridiculous. But you had access to things that made it so you could feel like you had a, a chance to survive. Yeah. And there are other mechanics. There are other ways to, to increase a unit's defense. Like you could you could make it so they have the character rule. Like there's some Death Guard stuff that has that. that makes things little things like Nurglings and stuff a little harder to kill. Sometimes for some stratagem points. Um, you can give them minus one hit in cover when they're in cover. Um, you can give them, uh, make them like what Dark Elder had before where they lower the range of the weapon, but you can only do it, it only happened, I think, after you shot the weapon or something like that, so it forfeited your shooting. Um, you know, there's there's multiple ways to increase the defense of a unit without just giving it a blanket minus one to hit or giving it a plus one to its save. Right? Yep. So, GW could definitely work on that. Well, um, I think... I think they are intentionally avoiding strong defensive bonuses in most cases uh, because they want the game to move quicker. 
defensive bonuses slow a game down. They mean more models stay on the table longer, which takes more time. Whether or not sure. that is the right decision, but I see what their rationale is. In 8th edition, they want things to die. Right. And they definitely don't want two up rerollables or or right. anything like the which, Death Stars of old, which were awful. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I think we're all quite happy to see that gone. So, uh, what do you guys think about this um, n- nerf to double move abilities uh, on units that are coming out of reserve and or uh, units deep striking quote unquote things like gate of infinity i don't mm-hmm. know what to what to call it other than that but deep striking like abilities um what do you guys think do you think that's that's overall good or do you think maybe those added a flexibility that you didn't that you needed in the game i feel like they were a little bit stronger than they should have been um you know warp time and quicken were both pretty quintessential in that regard and both of them guaranteed a charge if you you dropped in you moved in you could charge anything you wanted there was nothing the other guy could really do about it i think that was too strong um that said i wish they would show a little bit more flexibility in deep strike abilities like there's nothing wrong with having some units who can arrive at a distance closer than nine inches nine inches does not have to be an arbitrary barrier um i i kind of feel like custodies or some of these other armies should be able to get in a little closer just because they have fewer other tools to deal with screens and stuff like that if your screening distance is six inches instead of nine that actually like really makes it a lot more difficult to cover grounds um so this may have been a needed change but i wish it would i'm hoping that it comes in combination with kind of like things going forward that will make it not just like completely shut down the drop assaults. Right. Yeah. And th- th- that's actually a really good point that I've never thought of before, Sean, um, is I don't know why GW has sold as, you know, sold themselves to this nine inch rule at all. Right. I think that's part, the nine inch rule is part of the reason why horde armies are more popular and because it's a lot easier to block your opponent out. Um, if they, if there's nine, in- if say nine inches away from them, um, which I think is unfun. That's not, you know, that's lowering the interactivity in the game. Um, also, a unit of Wraith Guard dropping down within the nine inches is not the same as a unit of Terminators dropping down within nine inches, right? So the, those Wraith Guard, they're going to come down. They have flamers, eight inch range flamers, which are obviously more powerful than Stormbolters, right? That might come in like six inches away or something. But I feel like the nine inch roll was made just for flamers, but not every unit has flamers. So I don't, you know, I agree. Not every unit should be more than nine inches away or less than nine well, inches I agree away. with Pablo. I think nine inches for some people is just too much. If you could just lessen it down to six inches, it can for some people be the perfect fit. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I... <laughs> Thank you, Jeff, for, for elevating us all with that. That's what I do here. That's what I do. <laughs> all right. Um, so <laughs> is there anything else you guys want to highlight about the FAQ that you guys liked or um, things that I might be missing? Uh, well, we got to touch on the unchargeable unit. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I didn't want to. Oh, no. Uh, sorry. I, in I my opinion, is the worst to. part about it. Yeah. Uh, oh. There are a lot of things in this FAQ that I think are good. There are some that I think are maybe not ideal, but certainly working in the right direction. 
like like Jeff was saying earlier, maybe a little too heavy-handed in some cases, but certainly trying to do the right thing. The one that is just straight-out baffling and makes no sense to me is the unchargeable unit standing on terrain. I don't understand I, why it's there. I don't understand who they thought this would help. Okay, okay, before we before we get into this, I want to add some context for, for you viewers, because I know the, some of my listeners also don't play ITC missions, didn't play the ITC missions in 7th edition. Um, this community is actually split on this, right? So if you played ITC 7th edition FAQ, um, you know that the ITC rules, you, you can never block your opponent from charging your units on a ruin, right? You always just wobbly modeled it or whatever. You never, so you can never block a unit from char- getting charged, right? Um, but there were a lot of 7th edition purists who believed that you should be able to do that, right? You should be able to buy a bastion and put your guys on top of it and stop your opponent from charging that bastion, charging the units on top, right? Because because of raw, right? You can't go over your, your own units, etc., etc., um, so led to this big battle in the community that raged on in 8th edition, um, which unfortunately did not address those specific rules, right? And then there was open interpretations of the wobbly model syndrome rule, which is, uh, I, I'm 100% sure it's just simply like, oh, your model's about to fall. Um, I don't want this Imperial Knight to crush all these beautiful models. I'm just going to remove it real quick because it's being all wobbly on the table. But it does fit there um, for the most part, right? So, I, I, Anyways, so that's some context is, is that for those of you who might be angry um, saying, you know, like, oh, yeah, it should be that way. Like, yeah, there are people who agree with you, but the community was split on this. So GW finally made a decision. Um, so now, now we can talk about this. Yeah, it's... Or not. I mean, it's, it's, this is not a new problem. This is something that's been around. Like you say, it happened in 7th. It wasn't as important then because the charging rules and other stuff were different. But I think it sticks out like a sore thumb to a lot of people because... In an addition where more things make sense, where the rules tend to be more friendly to players, there are fewer gotchas, there are fewer like weird interactions between rules than you saw in 7th edition, it's a very odd, like, oh, you're standing on top of that 1.5-inch tall crate? Well, I guess I can never charge you then. And... It's not that this is going to destroy the game. You can still shoot that guy with bolt pistols and he dies. But it is an unfriendly interaction for a lot of people. And I don't really understand why it's there. I I almost have nothing to add just to basically completely agree with Sean. Where it's just in in a world where most of the rules are erring on the side of permissive and like less arguments and make more sense. It goes in the direction of like. Well, I guess it w- I, I'm going to lie. I will add the part that's really funny to it is that wobbly model still does exist. Mm-hmm. This doesn't even exclude from that. This doesn't even say what you previously understood about wobbly model now doesn't. It doesn't give an additional line of thought towards that. It's that they both exist at the same time and are both are true. So it says if you cannot place a model on the top level of a ruins. Which also gets weird because terrain in 8th edition is weird. Some things are ruins and some aren't. And if you look at the the page in the book on what ruins are or what aren't, it's kind of open and permissive, which is funny because that's kind of what they wanted. But then on this, they're like, you can't place it. They cannot make that charge. And then Wobbly Model exists where it says, if you can't place it, just discuss it or, or say that it's here. So there's that famous picture of Mortarian on his side with his base 
obviously within an inch of the guy up on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> in the book, it doesn't say you can't flip Mortarian over. It's just that nobody does that because we all fucking have brains and we play this game at a reasonable place, right? But all of a sudden, with this rule in place, I myself begin to start to think that way where I'm like, well, I don't want to have a unit that I can't charge. I don't like the idea of anything. And, and the the part two, not to throw him too under the bus, but Reese was making the argument during the uh, the show um, on Frontline Gaming uh, that, well, there was already situations where you couldn't charge uh, or units that couldn't charge. But to me, that's a non-point. That's a non-issue because you're increasing that infinitely. Now, any unit on any ruin or piece of terrain that is occupying the entirety of that space cannot be charged. So the idea that this happened before and that somehow makes this okay doesn't exist. Like, that's not even really a logical argument. That doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, murder happens. But if we just have a lot more murder, it should still be okay. It's like, no, no, no it, that's bad too, right? Yeah, it it really expands this, this negative case where like, oh, I can't charge you because of a weird rules thing. That did technically happen before, but now it is a much larger set of circumstances that result in that. And I don't think that's fun. I don't think that's enjoyable. And I don't think it makes particular sense to anyone, which is... And it gets weird. It yeah. Because there's Wobbly Model, but then there's also things with, like, Fly. Mm -hmm. it, it starts to feel more like that 7th edition where we had really stupid, weird rules. And then because yeah. the edition lasted so long, people were like, well, no, rule as written. This is exactly how it is. And both people, like have this terrible argument, and then a judge has to come over and make a pretty arbitrary de declaration at that moment in time, right? Yeah. This is going to happen again, where someone's like, I, I can place my model here. I think I can. And the other guy's like, no, you have to be more in a way. They're like, no, I don't, because I made a charge. And he's like, yeah, but your base is up on the wall. And he's like, yeah, well, nowhere in the book does it say I have to be level, like, you know, flat-footed on this spot. So what is placing the model? Yeah. And then the judge comes over and goes, I don't, listen, in my day with Rogue Trader, if somebody <laughs> tried to flip a model on its side, I'd punch him in the dick. And we're like, okay, cool. So in this case, it doesn't work. But then you go to Nova, Mike Brandt walks over in a leather jacket and a Speedo, and we're like, hey, can I stand on this wall? And Mike Brandt's like, I stand inside walls, motherfucker. Of course you can. <laughs> Got him! Yeah. So so uh, to play to play devil's advocate here a little bit, um, I would like to argue that th this is uh eighth edition is the age of true movement true line of sight tries true to be directions it, it, it tries to be right and, and there are there are a lot of weird unintuitive interactions in the game like for example terminators being able to move across a five inch gap from one piece of terrain to another because of the movement rules they can move in any direction so those terminators can just float across a five inch gap to go to another piece of terrain um, you know, like vehicles being able to shoot from their flags, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of weird, unintuitive things that, that don't make sense. And and I've had Reese beat this argument uh, to death, beat me to death with this argument that it, it's just, it's simply to create a simpler, better, more streamlined game. That's why you, you see rules like this. So I feel like this rule does not, it makes sense in 8th edition. It makes sense that GW made this rule, even though it, it is weird, right? So the, just double, just playing devil's advocate here. Right. Yeah, I I mean, I understand what they're going for to some degree with it. I just, I don't feel it's a good ruling overall. You can make an argument for it, as you just have, but I don't feel overall that it is worth the sort of uh, mental costs and 
and other problems that it it potentially raises. But that said, I don't think it's actually something that will come up as often as people seem to think. Like, there's a lot of people freaking out of like, oh my god, melee is completely dead. There's no point to even playing a melee army anymore. It's like, no, you actually have to have a really specific terrain piece with a really specific unit side to do this. It Most of the yeah. time, you won't be able to do it. It's just going to be really obnoxious when it does come up. It, it will become a tactic people put into their armies. Oh, yeah, they will buy sure. like an Imperial Bunker and throw, uh, I don't know, a Space Marine Devastator squad well, onto it or something. Not a ruin. Not, yeah, not a ruin. And I don't... Nice try, that. Pablo! Well, and I don't <laughs> think the ruling specifically calls out ruins. It's multi-level terrain pieces, which can include ruins, but can also include other things. Uh, not a terrain piece. Yes. That's the more relevant thing, <laughs> is it, basically anything you can purchase with points in your army is not a multi-level terrain piece. Uh, you know, the bunker is just a unit. It's essentially a transport. And we're still waiting on that Sky Shield landing pad rolling from GW. Uh, no, that's in there. Uh, <laughs> oh, is it yes, in there? Yes, the Sky Shield landing point pad is called out several times with some weird little rules. Like, being within an inch of it doesn't stop you from moving and acting normally. So, so, and you, you, can... so, you, can't, so you can start units on top of a Sky Shield landing pad now? Yes. Uh, because, okay. like, it basically doesn't count as a unit for most purposes of, like, movement and shooting and stuff. But, but you not are allowed to charge it and shoot at it. It's, okay. it's weird. I'm sure there's still going to be some strange cases with it, but they did actually fix some of the Sky Shield issues. Yeah. Uh, I'm of that rare opinion that I don't think people should ever be able to buy any terrain for their army in their army list, personally. Um I've just, I wow. just always felt like, I don't know, I just like, oh, Space Marines, Calgar and Gilman dragged their Imperial Bastion over with their five scout bike buddies. Like, oh, they just happened to have one. They just put it exactly where they wanted to. Like, no big deal. But, mm. you know, with like a Tyranid Swarm invading them and, and you know, attacking them like within I mean, minutes. The, you got to yeah, forge a harder narrative. The, the counter argument <laughs> there would be the Tyranid Swarm does bring its own terrain with it. Like in the fluff and in the game, but checkmate, Pablo. Checkmate, <laughs> but, liberals. But, but it doesn't. Anyways, we're, we're, I'm not going to digress into this. But the the, the point is, is is um they GW I think needs to take a hard look at the terrain rules, um and, and maybe not give it a complete overhaul, but just 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 take a hard look at the terrain rules mm. and and maybe change some things or clarify some more things, um because that is the one part of Eighth Edition that has been consistently lacking. Even now, even after this very thorough eighth edition FAQ, so okay, you know, yeah. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to add before we go into the kind of final thoughts about this episode? Or um, I know Jeff, I know you have to go soon. So um, so uh, is there any final thoughts you guys want to add to this? No, um, I'm good. I, I think it's a good discussion. I think I would just like to say that I appreciate that GW put out a batch of, because we've talked mostly about like the main rulebook FAQ and the, the big FAQ and all that sort of thing. All of the codexes, or almost all of them, I think there's like three that didn't get it, um, got FAQ updates of their own that answered a lot of little questions, including most of the significant questions from those armies uh there was a bunch of little stuff from forge world that got fixed uh the tau uh, codex had a number of little questions about it but they answered almost all of them um 
they did a very good job of closing up holes where people had pointed them out. Um, and that may not feel like a big deal, but I think it does speak to GW wanting to do a good job with this and putting effort into ensuring that the game is is playable and well-crafted. Yeah. Uh, so that's it, guys. That's all we have time for. Uh, this is going to be a shorter episode than normal. I am sorry that that this is a full episode of Chapter Tactics, um, but I really just wanted to bring Jeff and Sean on and hear their thoughts on the FAQ, um, and I was rewarded with some really good insight um, and some some uh, checkmates, unfortunately. A lot of checkmates. <laughs> yeah, we played so, six games of chess here tonight. <laughs> uh, thank you guys very much for listening. If you guys like these kind of episodes, let me know. Email me, frontlinegamingtdpab at gmail.com. Also, if you want to check out Jeff or Sean, they are on frontlinegaming.org and jeff is on twitch at in control tv um other than that thank you guys very much for listening let me know what you guys think about the faq and have a good one